You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from the third formant, everyone's favorite buzzsaw. Vocal fam. Hello. Back for the first time since, uh, I don't know, yeah, when we man. were here last. Sarah, when we were here last, I, I don't know. I think it was last week. Listen, I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> I don't, I'm pretty we, sure it was just have, last week. We have entered the phase of the semester that I like to call Pernaleaf's coffee cups, travel mugs all over the building. That is the phase of the semester we are currently in. I found right. a random one of my own in the recital hall just a few days ago and went, when did I leave this year? <laughs> uh, so that's the phase of the semester that we are in. Um, and we are about to go on spring break. Thank yes. the Lord in heaven above. Um, and I'm going to build a deck, finish a deck expansion, and it's going to be wonderful. And I'm not going to think about Little Women for seven days. It's going to be... Oh, I don't believe that. I'm not going to think about Little Women for seven days. It's going to be sure, great. Sure. Uh, anyway, Vogel fan, we have our dear friend Liz is back with us. Hello. Um, and uh, we are here with our dear friends uh, from Acoustic Vocal Pedagogy Workshop, Indeed. which is relaunching an in-person format here in summer 2023. Man, we've, uh, let's see, this this spring we've had on uh, Nat Science Informed People. We've had on SVI People. Mm -hmm. uh, is that, and, and now this, is that it? Is that summer programs like we've done this? I feel crazy? like we're forgetting somebody. Anyway. What an exciting spring. Lots of great continuing education opportunities coming up this summer. Um, and, and so I, I don't think any of these uh, gentlemen had, need any introduction to the podcast. We have Ken Bozeman, Ian Howell, Chadley Ballantyne, all who have been featured on episodes or back and returned and been back again. They're dear friends of the podcast, and uh, we're, we're just thrilled to have them here to tell us about this summer's exciting workshop. Everybody take a chance and say hi, just to remind the vocal family your voices. <laughs> Hello, glad to be here. This is Ken. Hey, this is Ian. It's good to be back. I think it's been an entire like three weeks since I've seen you guys. <laughs> More like right. almost two months. <laughs> no, what? No. Time has no meaning. <laughs> Time has no meaning. That's right. Hey, y'all. This is Chadley. It's great to be back. Um, absolutely wonderful. And Chadley, we're going to have you back on. I want to do an episode about your module teaching thing yeah. that we still want to do, and we'll get that set up at some point. Um, absolutely. Uh, anyway, okay, all right, so who wants to start? Tell us a little bit about Acoustic Vocal Pedagogy Workshop. I don't know if you want to give us some history or not to start out, or, or do you just want to dive into this summer? I'll, I'll leave that for y'all. I think we should tap Kenneth Bozeman here to get a little, <laughs> a little So, well, the history is, after uh, I wrote Practical Vocal Acoustics in 2013, I started uh, a workshop in 2015. The first year, Christian Herbst joined me, and then I wanted to swing more towards uh, pedagogy, active teaching folk, and also I meanwhile met Ian at the Nets Intern. So I asked Ian to join me, and both of these were in Wisconsin in a beautiful facility we have on the Upper Peninsula, on the, on the upper peninsula but the peninsula north of Green Bay. And then and Chandley came to the first one, I believe it was, and he had done such a beautiful job uh, coming up with a Q&A for the end of, you know, to, to accompany Practical Vocal Acoustics. I said, wow, this guy's, this guy's great, I got it. So anyway, <laughs> basically it evolved that eventually Ian said, let's do this in Boston, because he was at that time at NEC, where he 
was forming a lab and had grad students that could assist, and it was much easier to fly there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we moved there, I believe in, what was the first year? Because I did 15 I and 17. Twi- yeah, year. 2018 was the first year. We did and 18 and we did it 19. annually every year since then, except for last summer when Ian moved and we lost our NEC host site. So, and, and also COVID, of course, made us yeah. go virtual for a while. But it's grown. Um, it's We did hybrid, and in one year we had, when we did a virtual, there were like nearly 130 participants from six different countries uh, around the world with the virtual. But anyway, we're going back to in-person, a little bit more intimate again, you know, limited in number so that we can really give personal attention to people. And Ian is uh, now in Ann Arbor and he's worked out something with the university there to host us so he's kind of doing a lot of the logistics and he's going to bring on some help for that as well and we're we're very excited to be able to meet in person again where we can do live demonstrations again which is great which I can come back to later but that's sort of a quick nutshell Ian you want to add to it you're welcome to yeah I mean I, I you know Ken invokes the pandemic and that that had such a such an impact on all of our lives in so many different ways and i feel like in some ways we're still kind of playing out our responses to the Mm -hmm. ways in which we were challenged to to learn or to teach or to try to create and share culture kind of or to exist yeah i mean yeah just to put food on the table my god right um so i you know i think one of the things that that i took away from it is like both the 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 power and the value proposition of face-to-face interactions with people and also that there's a really there's a different value proposition for high quality online interactions right Mm -hmm. it's like we we don't have to only serve one set of needs or one kind of student so one of the things i'm super excited we're going to do an in-person workshop again this summer and uh, i look forward to talking about like what that looks like and what learning outcomes will be and kind of for whom it's it's appropriate but um, one of the things we're going to do this year, just based on all of the experience that we we built up during the pandemic, offering asynchronous and synchronous online education, is we're going to run an online course that can stand alone as a, an introduction to um, to this information, like what is the acoustical, what is the perceptual landscape of how voices work, how can we kind of train our ears to hear with nuance and what are the the pedagogical frameworks that we can bring to bear on encountering voices and sort of predicting what they should be able to do even if a given singer can't do it yet Uh, so we're gonna like we're gonna introduce that information with asynchronous videos and anybody who registers for the in-person workshop will have access to this as well it'll be like a way to sort of level up on some knowledge and everybody can hit the ground running together. Oh, okay. So um, you're saying that you're saying that if I register for the in-person workshop, I'll actually have access to the online content even prior to coming to the workshop. Prior to coming to the workshop, yeah. Oh, that online. could be very helpful, actually. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I think it'll be attractive to people who intend to come anyway, right? Right. But I think there'll be this other group of people. Um, as Ken mentioned, it's like where the, our client base kind of is on multiple continents and in unfortunately multiple time zones, and um, and those folks who can't make the trip to Michigan, for for whom that's an, an economic or logistical or just like lifestyle barrier, um, they'll still be able to encounter the information, and they'll be able to watch pre-recorded video lectures 
which are demonstration heavy. Um, but we're also going to basically set up office hours for the month of July, um, at least with the three of us, with me, Ken, and Chadley. And so people will be able to have synchronous online experiences, small group lesson situations, tutorials to review the material. Um, so I, my hope is like we're going to offer what I perceive to be a pretty robust set of potential experiences, like way people, ways people will be able to uh, encounter the material this summer. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So, I mean, let's let let let's break it down a little bit. Like, let, let's talk about the in-person workshop here here a little bit. Let, let, let's let's stick with that for a minute. So. Um, you know, I, I come. What what might I expect? What what might uh, a, a day look like? What might the week look like? It, it, five days, six days, five days. It's it's full days Monday through Friday. Monday so like through Friday. Arrive on Sunday, leave on Saturday morning, and like hit the ground running. Got Monday it. Morning. All right. So what what might a day look like that week? We, we should say too from the beginning. We're talking about July thirty first. Oh, thank you. August fourth. That Monday through okay. that Friday. My kids' second week of school. Oh we'll already right. be you we've gone to a year-round school model this yeah. year mm -hmm. and they told us in february and everyone's vacation was already planned for the first week of school good times yeah anyway it's a different well, nick you may be interested on our in our online course <laughs> see <laughs> lifestyles away, right, right? Yeah. lifestyles man okay all right so what right. might a day look like here Ken, this july 31st week ken do you want to kind of kind of run that down Assuming that we, you know, basically do what we've done before, we, we have mostly lectures in the morning, lunch break, then um, often there might be a, a plenary demonstration session right after lunch, like a master class or something, followed by uh, special topics that people can move around to with different faculty for the rest of the afternoon <coughs> and, and or private lessons and or and this again kind of depends that I mean the whole new setting will be new and we'll have to figure that out and what's available to us there in terms of hours but we did do some evening uh, lessons as well for individuals and yeah, uh, we'll, we def we'll past, definitely keep doing that we this haven't year. really even met to rediscuss this but people that were willing to uh, be viewed in other words to do public lessons I think got freebies and uh, other people that wanted a private lesson with no observers for a, a nominal fee, since they were already, you know, paid to come to the thing, could could uh, purchase for a small fee uh, private lessons. But we wanted to encourage public lessons because the whole point is for everybody to learn from each other and be comfortable, and which is why we structured it that way to try to encourage observable lessons, but to allow people that had reasons to really need a, a private session to to do that. So. Let, let's let's chat a little bit about like um, the the roles that each of you play, kind of the content areas that you cover, what the learning outcomes of those you know sort of different areas might be. If I'm if I'm considering coming, like entice me to come by what each of you might offer in terms of expertise and and content. My summary, and then I'm going to toss it to my colleagues. My summary currently, in my current one of my current sort of hobby horses, I guess you could say, is. We're going to be presenting science-informed, decla uh, objective, declarative knowledge that, of voice acoustics that teachers need to know in order to uh, 
teach uh, what what creates it with with vocal efficiency and acoustic efficiency, and then, uh, and this is key, uh, the subjective, uh, sensorial, procedural knowledge that singers need to know in order to be able to sing with functional efficiency, and the difference there is that declarative stuff is more or less objective things you can talk about and, and measure and, and so forth and the procedural is pretty much all what it feels like sounds like to the human doing it and therefore you were necessarily having to use subjective descriptive language as voice teaching has done forever that's where terms like chest voice head voice because <laughs> people felt stuff in places you know uh, and then and, and I'm, I'm pushing back on the the uh, reluctance to use sensorial language um, and we could go into that in some detail but I, I won't I won't go off on that this morning but anyway so to me putting it in bodies helping them you know what are your what are, what does the singer do the singer doesn't do percentages of CT and TA muscles they have feelings oh my voice feels like this and, and they have sound targets they have auditory targets and, and those those sensations are locational as well as uh, other things that they f they sense. They feel vibrations that Chadley can elaborate in great detail. Anyway, so we can talk about all those things. Um, so those two pieces, declarative, the objective stuff, and procedural, this is what it feels like. That's kind of like the stuff Tietze knows and the stuff Pavarotti knew. Okay? <laughs> and both of those are knowledge. Both of those are kinds of knowledge, and I'll, uh, frankly, the stuff Pavarotti know, knew, that's actually the gold. That if you're if you're interested in good singing and behavior, but it's all they, they feed each other, so it's not uh, neither it's neither um, one or the other. It's a both end. Absolutely, you know, it's interesting just to pause for a minute on that note. You know, Liz and I were actually in class earlier this semester and um, before things went crazy because she had to do her lecture recital and we were doing it was actually in a class that we were basically singing the whole class yeah and you kind of had this we were literally ta talking her through um kind of you know can your 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 whoop close and open you know terminology but in her own experiences and uh you know, it, it kind of led to like this breakthrough, but but it was a breakthrough in how you described how it felt. Yes, I'm trying to remember which part. I was when we were working on close vowels so much, trying to get your belt voice kind of to turn rather than just be splatty and yeah. open. Yeah. And you were like, "Oh, it goes up," and I was like, "Okay, I don't care." Yeah. <laughs> sure, it goes up. <laughs> it's like I don't care what you. Yep. You know, that's great. <laughs> Whatever it feels like. Because we got the target, we got the target noise. So I mean, anyway. All right. So 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 what else? The other two of y'all. What, what what are we covering? All right. Well, um, my my portion of this is it's a little bit varied, um, but generally speaking, I'm looking at application and in a couple of specific areas. Um, one of my specialties is how to think about this. Um, or apply this uh, knowledge for working with adolescent singers um, and thinking about what resonant voice means and sounds like and what it seems like in a 14-year-old voice compared to a 40-year-old voice. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the first time I started um, analyzing uh, middle school voices in lessons and noticing, like, oh, <laughs> there's a lot of different flavors of, quote, resonant voice out there. And maybe maybe there is something beyond just sounding like Horovstovsky for resonant voice. And being able to recognize, okay, there's a lot of material to work with here, even if it's in a 13-year-old instrument. Right. Um, so, so expectations for adolescent singers. And then another aspect that I'm really passionate about is um, how to think about this or how to use this knowledge for understanding or leveraging or maximizing your ability to do crossover work and crossover training. So helping, helping singers go beyond just one single target or just trying to Im- uh, trying to improve just one single aspect of their singing or one model of their singing and instead kind of seeing, okay, here are the cause and effect um, levers that I can pull to switch the outcomes in my singing. Here are the things that unify a lot of different styles as far as like fun- fundamental things for the technique. And then here are a couple of things that seem small really when you're looking at them but then in the result produce like something that we would say is apples and oranges as far as style outcome yeah and and then of course um so some of that application is through uh really looking at how we can leverage this for auditory targets understanding why the vowel chains that we choose in our warm-ups could be really effective or really challenging or make the my goal is always to make it mathematically impossible to fail. <laughs> uh, someday I'll achieve that goal. Uh, but how can we structure our their sequences of, of phonemes in our, in our exercises that we develop for our students that make it just mathematically inevitable that something's going to change and, that it's, and it makes it more likely that it's impossible to go back to the way that wasn't so fun. Um, then and so yeah and of course that involves R at some point. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> a great sound, Chad. Um, <laughs> um, and then and then yeah, another side quest that I've been on is is, is looking into what Ken was saying about you know the singer experiences sensation and they're very vivid and they're emotional and they're important and I think it's I think it's absurd to pretend that they don't exist. And so my question is, okay, what do we know? Which, where is there knowledge that we can transfer to the experience of singing to start to sort out some of these sensations? Yeah. So uh, I've, the, the research about vibrotactile awareness of sound is really not coming from the singing world. It's coming from a lot of other different avenues of research. And as far as how touch works, and how we interact with the world through touch. That research is actually goes back over a hundred years. Um, it's just kind of bringing like that and applying it to like, oh, this is why I see unicorns and rainbows in my head when I sing. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, that that sensation. That's not really literally happening, but it's so vivid. I can use it as like a flashing LED to tell me I'm on, I'm on target instead of confusing it with an actual muscular action that if I try to do it harder, literally will just cause discomfort and tension and and, and you to see death with a scythe instead of unicorns and rainbows <laughs> oh lord <laughs> yes true uh so yes less death more <laughs> unicorns and rainbows that's the, that's our new tagline for the workshop 
I, uh, I, I think, you know, Ken laid out what a day is going to look like, right? And it's like, we have these morning, we have a morning lecture series, which I think we can kind of, we can kind of say like, that's the theory part of the workshop. And then we have these afternoon application sessions, which are either very large group, like everybody in the whole cohort or smaller groups, or people will even have chances for individual, um, individual explorations. But like the, the thing that I keep coming back to with this material, um, and you know, maybe if there's a, um, uh, Ingo Roddy, like, I don't know if there's a person in between. Wasn't Ingo that Tizza Pavarotti, and, but Pavarotti, anyway. Yeah, he's not self-aware yet, right? Um, but the, the thing that I keep coming back to is that the theoretical framework, which we will present, like it, it literally, it describes real things that we can feel and that we can ourselves hear while singing. Yeah. But it also describes real things that like an outside observer can hear while their student or their client is singing. Um, so the like the material that I'm I'm going to present, I'm really interested in auditory perception and psychoacoustics, and just if as a voice pedagogy culture in our declarative learning we are going to say we're going to foreground and say it's important to look at spectrograms and sort of understand vowels and registration qualities through the output of a spectrogram, that's great. We have to honor that the human ear does not process that sound wave the way a spectrogram does. And so like the way a spectrogram looks, we, we can learn a, a set of skills, which is evidence-based and sort of coheres as a nice little theoretical unit of knowledge, we can learn how to visually annotate a spectrogram so that we can figure out it's like oh that part of the spectrogram sure seems to be present when somebody is doing a high mix belt and it does not seem to be present when somebody is doing a really whoopy dramatic soprano lofty high note right and then we can talk about like well qualitatively like what's that part of the spectrum sound like and then we have a label and then as soon as we have a label, we'll start noticing these sonic properties over and over again, and it becomes part of a predictive framework for how voices could possibly sound. Um, so w like one of the things I always enjoy, and I've, I feel like my favorite part of the workshop is getting to watch Ken and Chad Lee give lectures. Um, and every year I feel like I understand their points of view a little bit better. Like the, the theoretical information that everybody is gonna present, the, the three of our views on the acoustic and perceptual landscape of singing, like fit together like really nice Lego blocks. Um, but one of the things I, I really appreciate too is the, the three of us understand where each other is coming from. And so, you know, Chadley's work hugely influences the way that I teach applied voice. Ken's work profoundly influences the way that I teach applied voice. And so participants who come, it's, it's not just that you're gonna like, here's some knowledge, here is one way to apply it, right? You're gonna be exposed to a theoretical framework for predicting how voices should, could, and might behave. And then you're actually gonna get to see multiple ways that that information like manifests in real singing voices and and sort of multiple multiple ways to a, approach it from a procedural point of view right like it's not just one quick fix it's like well here's this thing that's real let's talk about how it might manifest as a real phenomenon that we can feel and hear when people sing I, I would love also uh, just to mention uh, so Ken Chadley and myself have sort of formed the core 
of the, the lecture portions of this workshop for several years at this point. Um, every year we have a number of other faculty. Uh, Nick, you were one of our faculty during the pandemic. Um, and so I just want to share like some other people who will be there and, and what they'll be bringing. Um, so we're really lucky to have uh, a, a handful of just really excellent colleagues who will be joining us this year. Uh, Marcy Rosenberg, who is the co-author of The Vocal Athlete. She's Who's been on the podcast. Because she's she's great. And, and she lives in that place of, of rehabilitating singers and having a really robust sense of what it is to habilitate a singer as well. And she she swims in the world of musical theater here in Ann Arbor, right? So she is going to be an amazing resource just for having another point of view for approaching teaching that literature, that vocal literature. Uh, she's also going to offer sessions on like not just applying SOVTs, but like, like what do SOVTs sound like? What is the outcome that it is that we are shooting for? What, is, what are the possible different kinds of SOVT, semi-occluded vocal tract exercises we might use? What are their pedagogical um, rationales? Like how are they appropriate to use? Uh, and she's also going to present some information on motor learning theory which nice. I feel like it like that that's kind of a bedrock for everything we do when we apply these ideas. Mm -hmm. um, we are going to have the Joanne Bozeman joining mm -hmm. us who in addition to just also being, been on the podcast also <laughs> friend of the podcast yeah um, in addition to like being a tremendous voice teacher and honestly one of the best modelers of pharyngeal voice I've ever heard <laughs> like you're, you're going to hear the way that she demonstrates this idea, and you're going to be like, oh, right, that's that's exactly what that is. Um, mm -hmm. But she's also, as listeners to the podcast know, is really knowledgeable about lifespan, singing voice issues, mm -hmm. changes that will take place, hormonally related impacts on the voice, and that's just such a, a crucial building block in uh, being able to, again, really like predict what voices should be able to do. Um, the Bodo Most is going to join us uh, all the way from Germany. Also and, uh, friend of the podcast. Also friend of the podcast, right? And so he, he is the, the programmer for Voce Vista Video Pro. And he will be available as part of like a, you know, c come to the workshop wanting to do nothing but like, like make scratch marks with a pencil on a piece of paper. You'll be great. You'll have a wonderful time. Come to the workshop with your computer so that you can learn how Voce Vista Video Pro works better learn how Pratt works, start understanding how to take signals with a microphone or RESP track or sort of other biometric analysis things, like you'll find a home for that as well. And Bodo will be available to give tutorials in how to best get started or even advanced application with Voce Vista Video Pro. Or with, uh, with Voce Vista while you're with, with Bodo, you could just sit there and record a podcast and just geek out uh, and, and fangirl over Bodo for an hour. I don't I mean. I remember that. We, I wouldn't that. say we were all embarrassed for you, but. But, but, but like also, <laughs> but, were we? But, I mean, were we? <laughs> Sarah was. I was amusing. Like, it no. was. It was I had a great, great time. I, I like knowing what my friends are excited about. Um, <laughs> right? We're also going to have Lauren Guthridge come from New England Conservatory. She's the voice and sound analysis lab manager, and so she will be on hand to um, help people who, again, are interested in maybe some of the more technology-related stuff. That's mm -hmm. always been a component of this workshop for the past couple of years. Um, and she's also going to help kind of with facilitating and managing the program. I mean, it's it sounds just 
fantastic as always. What would you say to someone who maybe has come before, maybe is considering coming again? Well, I would say um, I've continued to learn and refine, frankly, since it was in 1989 that I made sort of the key observation of the relationship between transitions in the voice and first form locations. Um, and, and then I spent the next 18 years playing with that idea in the studio before I ever put pen to paper um, to figure, well, okay, how do I, how do I train the, this phenomenon? Um, and it took me a while, you know, I, right away I understood the implications for tenor passaggio because that's what I was working on myself personally and also all of my young, you know, AMAB students. But it took me a while to figure out what to do with treble voices with that. I, I knew certain things, but that's continued to evolve more and more. But I still, uh, why is that? Because procedural knowledge is difficult to articulate. You're describing sensations. Mm -hmm. and, you're, and they can be described a lot of different ways, actually. Which doesn't mean that they're unreliable. Um, this is the key point that I'm trying to emphasize these days. <clears throat> you know, the, the, there's been a push, understandable for objective language. We need objective language so we're all talking about the same thing. We can have a long discussion about if there is such a thing as objective, but uh, there's certainly, we can have a longer discussion about is there such a thing as an, as a an objective, um, I don't know I'm going to say this, objective language or objective sensation. But at any rate, point being, there, there, is, there are real things that happen that can be measured that science can tell us about the declarative piece. But describing a sensation in a way that communicates that to another human, it depends on how their brain is attending to the sensation as to how they're going to perceive it in the first place. A great example of that is when Wolfgang Zaus teaches you how to hear harmonics as an overtone singer instead of hearing linguistically we tend to hear uh, linguistically rather than spectrally, most of us, because language, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you can learn to start hearing harmonics popping through vowels. Um, so, but that's, it's a, a matter of how the brain is attending to it. So in lessons, how many of us have the experience, I've never said this before, but try this. <laughs> what we're doing is we're groping for a new procedural description of something that we think in the situation might be helpful. And so that continues to happen. And I have to say, I'm a better teacher right now than I was even two months ago, and certainly than five years ago. And why? Uh, well, I am also learning some more declarative things as well, frankly, <laughs> but, but the procedural piece and how to describe and coach and coax those responses is constantly evolving. So you come back again, there will be new tweaks quite a bit uh, because both of those areas, both the declarative and the procedural, are moving forward and, uh, and we're learning, ever learning, as will happen as long as we're on this planet, I think. Well, and you know what's interesting on that point, Ken, is I actually feel like, you know, you kind of said that we've been in this place where we've been searching for this objective language. I actually have found... And I don't know, Ian Chadley, you might agree with me or not, or Sarah, Liz. Um, I actually have found that if you follow kind of our online 
voice teacher zeitgeist actually a swing away from that and a swing more towards just help me with the subjective like i uh, like i feel like there's a it's almost as if objective things have become a bad word a little bit and in, in our in our pedagogy community particularly if you're looking at those under 40ish um, and people just want the touchy-feely stuff. That's all they want. Um, and I, I think I think y'all are threading a, a very um, important, I'll use the word important, needle here, where you're going to present some of these objective, I think you said science-informed words, Ken, um, and terms and, and ideas, but you're actually then going to really deal with the procedural learning stuff that I actually think that is what I'm seeing is what people are really after. Because I've even observed it with my graduate students and, and a shift even generationally between when the young woman to my immediate right, Sarah, was an undergraduate. People wanted more brain knowledge at that point, even seven, eight years ago. And I've noticed a generational shift that Gen Z and younger, they don't. They just want to know how to do the thing. And and uh, that's not that they don't want any information, but I've I've noticed a I've I've noticed a pretty and, and maybe it's just in my part of the country, maybe it's just in the populations that I teach. I'm not so sure, but I feel like we've seen a shift in that in the profession a little bit. So I think y'all are are threading an important needle here. Please, Ian. You know, th I mean, this is something I've always really appreciated about Ken's work because I I encountered the way he presented like even basic concepts of, of voice acoustics like I encountered that simultaneous to reading Donald Miller and principles of voice production and you know countless articles that sort of explore these these principles and um you know if if there's a if as you say there, there is some sort of cultural shift that is happening right now I think to an extent it's like as a pedagogy, like as a voice ped community culture, I feel like we gave it a good go that like if you just learn a bunch of information that describes the output of singing, if you just learn enough of that, that there will be an automatic effect um, and you'll be able to, to utilize it in the studio. And, um, and I think what, what I always appreciate about, about the way that, that Ken frames this material is like, that that's not enough like you you can you can learn all that information and that can then be that can be the knowledge base that informs the way you react to the human in front of you but like mm -hmm. like voice like approaching teaching a singer according to the principles of voice acoustics like that doesn't help if they didn't breathe in you know it's like <laughs> there are just some like some like basic aspects of like how to get a singer's voice moving and how to generate energy in the voice that like that has to be there before you can even attempt to say okay everybody hear that sound that took place like either for good or for ill as the, as the singer was trying to change pitch or like change the emotional content of what they were saying here that's that thing that changed that is because xyz from our shared right. knowledge base about how voice acoustics works but i i feel like uh, especially people who teach voice pedagogy classes like I, I feel like a lot of people in the generation who are now sitting in those chairs in colleges like those people are really having to ask themselves questions about 
you know, just like you wouldn't just say you have a thyroid cartilage and a cricoid cartilage. Like you have to talk about how they move and how their motion might affect the sound and whether you want to cue it with it moving in this way or you want to cue it with it moving in this other way. So for me, practical application, what it sounds like, what it feels like, potentially what it will look like in the student, that is like everything we talk about at this yeah. workshop that is theoretical has to go through that sieve, right? Or, or is probably not worth talking about. I mean, I kind of hate to put it that way, but... Chadley. Yeah, one of the... I guess from my perspective, and this is just from my perspective rather than saying this is how it's been historically, but as as I was kind of coming up through my training when I was an undergraduate, it seemed like there was a lot of terminology and historical and subjective jargon that meant something very specific to people from those different traditions mm -hmm. and that there was no way to communicate across those, those traditions that easily just the use of a term could immediately start a fight rather than a conversation. And then what I love about this material is it facilitates or allows um, for, for the basically translating and understanding um, when we talk about the, the subjective um, terminology and really wanting that. I feel like this kind of opens, like takes down barriers between terminology where you can say, oh, okay, like what they're describing in that term, I kind of think about um, uh, about what kind of qualities in the sound that might be. Um, it's not so limiting anymore. So this really, for me, it opens up a lot of possibilities for conversation and dialogue and understanding and being able to make up terminology on the fly within the studio when you're there working with someone helping them with the the procedural side and not getting hung up on you know the definition of of, of, a, of a, a word that is subjective um, the other aspect about this that I love as far as like people who might consider coming back is as Ian and Ken were saying this this keeps evolving and we keep you know everybody involved with this is you know, like continuing to see how this works in application. Um, and I, for me, <laughs> what I say to my, my students in pedagogy is as my understanding gets deeper and like the declarative side gets more complex, the procedural side gets simpler. Yeah. Oh, yes. The silly way of saying it is the best voice science if I haven't boiled it down to an animal sound yet that I, I don't know it well enough yet yep. <laughs> I still have things to learn <laughs> yeah I, that is man that is so true you know it's so interesting too everything you all just kind of beautifully said I, I would distill as well from the fact that you know we talked we keep talking about how we keep evolving right and how this information keeps evolving and how our understanding of it keeps evolving and how our application of it keeps evolving Don Miller taught me voice acoustics, but Ken made voice acoustics applicable for me. And then Ian broke my ears, and I hate him. Yay. <laughs> um, uh, and it's his fault. Um, but, uh, but, but no, I just, you know, I mean, I think that 
I mean, and Sarah's gotten to observe this, even in me, in, in my own, you know, and, and look, I've been teaching PED now for, you know, way too long. And, you know, even in the years that Sarah's known me, my stuff went from kind of very much entrenched in a Don Miller model of all of this to now when Liz took my class in the fall, it was more like, okay, so we're going to talk about smooshes of noise. <laughs> Smooshes of noise. All right. Is that's that is that not a fair term? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and 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 so um, and, and trying to get their ears to open up and then perceive how they sing and in that and how they can smoosh their own voice. <laughs> Amazing. It's all smooshes. In an objective framework. Well, that's what I love about it. Is it's like if if you can just. If you can just take on the framework, it, it actually gives you freedom. Like, yes. You could use the framework to explain anything. The sound of city bus brakes when they're wet. <laughs> I mean, like to say nothing of people who are adding distortion and growly sounds to their singing by rattling the arytenoid cartilages against their epiglottis. It's, it's like it's it's the knowledge is freeing in a way because it allows you to kind of parse the sounds you're hearing and, and reason through back to what the functions are and then at that point i mean i i agree nick's like i i don't know anybody in this business better than ken at making these acoustic principles real in terms of of using affect and using very Mm -hmm. humanistic language to motivate people's bodies to kind of stumble upon the coordination and and i think that's why that's why being able to observe this in person with real humans or even in an online session with more than one person like like it's important to hear four different tenors trying the same sound it's important to hear four different people singing rock styles to try the same sound and and you you hear how they are different yet they essentialize some underlying pattern and and if i may i mean you know ken i know you're always quick to say you've spent you know most of your career teaching classical singers but I've used your principles. Uh, I, 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 I teach as many musical theater singers as I do classical singers at very high levels. And I've used your principles to teach very high level musical theater singing in, a, in the same manner in which it's, it's a different language. We have different tonal outcome goals and, sure. and, and this kind of thing. But in the same way I teach my students who are preparing, I have a soprano preparing Donna Anna right now. Like, you know, we're, 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 we're using the same tools though. And, and so I just, Vocal Fam, I really hope you'd consider going this summer. Now, the workshop is now under Embodied Music Lab. Is that correct? Yeah, so we're not, we're not directly associated with an institution like we were at NEC or like we were um, at, for Lawrence. Uh, so uh, we're running it through the Embodied Music Lab. And if people want to come learn more about it, there's a, you know, there's a website. They can, honestly, they can search Acoustic Vocal Pedagogy Workshop and they'll be able to find it. Or they can go to embodiedmusiclab.com and they'll be able to find a link to the page as well. Uh, early bird pricing ends on March 28th. And so, Ooh, so time to get it in. Yeah, yeah if, if people would like to, to register, like we're kind of in the window where it would be prudent to go ahead and do so. Um, I, I'd, I'd offer too, this is something we, we didn't really talk about, but like historically, the kinds of people who come to this workshop. Oh yeah, is, please. Is a broad spectrum of people who work in the voice world 
we certainly have people who are either collegiate or private studio voice teachers. And those people come from a variety of sort of genre and style traditions. Like as, as Nick intimated, it, it's like even those of us who came up professionally as classical singers ourselves, basically all of us cross train at this point. And uh, all of us have students who either pursue musical theater or contemporary um, uh, vocal genre, like in technical approaches. And, and I agree. I mean, I think this material generalizes really well to a wide variety of sounds that people can possibly make. We have choral conductors who come. We have uh, professional or pre-professional singers who come in a variety of styles again. Uh, we've had people come who are enrolled in voice science PhD programs, and they get a lot out of it. We have people who are speech-language pathologists, either in training or in practice, um, who specifically work with like a professional voice clientele uh, who are actually interested in the singing voice. So it's like it's a wide spectrum of types of people who might be interested in um, confronting this material, absorbing it, and sort of thinking about how they may apply it in their own professional contexts. Which is really exciting. Ken, you want to say something? Sure. I, I think that um, summarizing in a sense that I teach, well, the acoustic landscape that we inhabit, and I'm talking about our internal acoustic landscape, is the same for everybody essentially and its essential components. Then how you play in that scene is genre specific. And what choices you make are genre specific. And there are certain givens that will make it work better or, or less well. Um, one, one point that I like to bring up that I, I'd love to have this from the horse's mouth, but I have it secondarily from Ingo Tietze, who, who is quoting uh, Harm Schutte, who is Donald Miller's you know, research partner and, and the scientist of the two of them. That, uh, in his doctoral dissertation, apparently, he managed to observe that the decibel level of the acoustics inside the vocal tract on average for a robust sound was 30 decibels stronger than the decibel level that came out the mouth. And if you know that decibel levels are logarithmic, that means That's a, a thousand lot. times, a thousand times as intense. It's 10 to the power of three. And it's echoing back and forth in the vocal tract. And it's either helping or hindering the, the vibration of the, the glottal pulse. It's very powerful. So understanding how to utilize that feedback system is a very powerful avenue into improving vocal function. And so that's my, my sort of go-to punch for acoustic vocal pedagogy is really powerful once you understand what you're doing with it. And you can make different choices, but the choices you make have to be beneficial to the, to the, the, uh, the vibrator to assist its work. Because yep. the vibrator is doing, one, is doing two things primarily. It's creating pitch by shaping different lengths, thicknesses, and inner stiffnesses to create to vibrate at the frequency that you need to do. And it's resisting pressure from below. And the more energy it has to expend on resisting the pressure from below, the less well it can shape for pitch. So keeping the pressure difference between below and above narrow by acoustic strategies above is huge in freeing up the vibrator to make all the shapes it needs to make. That's it right range. there. So this is what we, you know, we, we're focusing on. What are the strategies we can use per genre? So I think we teach, we try to teach genre agnostic is the way we like to talk about it. 
that these ideas can be used across various genres. You just play with them a little differently. And we also teach gender androgynously, basically. Mm. That is to say... Most larynxes are larynxes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there will be certain tendencies having to do with dimensions and size and strengths and so forth and so on. But in general, I teach uh, the, the, what I would call the, the lower passaggio of treble voices is the upper passaggio of non-treble voices the yeah. same way. And we can decide, depending on the genre and the percept that we want for the genre, how much auditory roughness, how, how therefore how chesty we want it to sound, or how heady we want it to sound. Is it smoother, it's headier. Is it rougher, it's chestier, using historic terms. So that's, you know, th those two points, that it's, that it's not, it's not genre-specific, nor is it gender-specific in that sense, though it, it acknowledges whatever it needs to of those factors. Um, there was another thing that's slipping my mind now, but those are the two, two main points I wanted to make. I will say this, you know, I wrote the first book a little bit, you know, tr venturing out and hopefully not w wanting my, my science friends to be okay with it. And then Ian had me to NEC to do a master class. He said, so when are you going to write another book? I said, what, are you gonna, what am I going to write about? You know, the stuff you say in the studio, I said, you mean my, my touchy-feely stuff? <laughs> a little bit, really, can I go out with that? I mean, I'm a little nervous about going with my touchy-feely stuff. Well, now I'm all about the touchy-feely stuff, okay? You know, uh, and I still very much believe in science-informed. I'm not dissing that at all, but that's not what I do in the studio. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I do in my PED classes, and a little bit in the studio, but mostly I'm doing the the procedural knowledge, which is the felt sensorial, how do you do, what does it feel like? How do you do this? And uh, yeah. Yeah, I, it's so interesting. You know, people sometimes are like, so you, do you like run a spectrogram in your lessons? And I'm like, nah, no, never, ever, 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 ever. I, I did have one running at Lawrence. I don't anymore, but I did constantly. But I referred to the mirror on the wall way more you know, very of course, yeah, I refer to the spectrogram. You can see vibrato. There's certain things that you can read easily off a spectrogram, but a lot of the important things you cannot read easily off a spectrogram. Well, ad admittedly, I kind of arrogantly say my ears can hear more things than the spectrogram can. That's just true. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And your eye can see things. Yeah, you and your eye. That's the teacher experience part of the equation, which I'm also yeah big on. Yeah, uh, we learn things that I consider to be real evidence and real knowledge. That is not science um, lab learned. It's yep. practice learned, and and it has validity. We can always test it. If it's measurable, we can test it. But some of it's not so easily measurable. That's right. And, and yet you learn it over time with experience. And uh, you know we're trying to convey that in these these. Uh, yeah, Ian. I, I mean, I think what Ken is saying is just so important, even even as like a button to put on this. It's like, a, what will somebody take away? Yeah. And um, and I'm just imagine like the first time I ever saw a teacher who was like really amazing at getting like classically trained singers to get middle lower like speaky range for musical theater rep to work. It, it's like. Part of it was like, oh well, don't take such a damn big breath. It's like there was a there was a declarative thing, but but then there was like this procedural part of it, which was like, how do you actually get somebody to just do it? And yeah. and like the the first time that you actually watch somebody 
get a mix in a treble voice to actually work and like you notice the light go like bing the light go off in the singer's eye where they're like this is easy and powerful and it didn't feel like anything was going to break it's like mm. it is so important just for all of us to know that the theoretical side of it like the the virtue of it as voice teachers is not just the intellectualization of the information right yeah the virtue of it as voice teachers is these are real things you can hear and until you actually hear until you watch somebody put it into application and actually hear what the result is and notice the way that the, that pattern of stimulation in the singer's body changes the way that they're able to dependably execute something it's like once you hear it and then you can label it it's yours you know and you'll be able to go forward with all of your students that you work with and you'll be able to stimulate that same response because you literally know what it is you have a label for it so there's a place in your brain that you can store it you're not going to forget it you're not going to lose track of it um so it's in like what i love about this workshop and i think like if there's a big like learning outcome takeaway from it it is that you are going to be able to take all these ideas about how the acoustics of the voice work and ken is right like the acoustic the, the motion of air in the vocal tract is violent right it is amazingly powerful and is a strong driving force of how we even get the vocal folds to oscillate in the first place right and that is evidence-based that is not a radical thing to say um you're going to be able to take your understanding of that and all of a sudden use it to make real singers make real powerful efficient emotionally connected sounds and you're going to understand why so your imagination is going to be like rich with potential ways to like cue the subjective ineffable experience that it is to actually try to make these sounds yeah yeah, absolutely. Okay, so give us the, the nitty-gritty again. Dates? Dates. July 31st, that is a Monday, through August 4th, that is a Friday. So people will arrive in Ann Arbor, Michigan on the Sunday before, because we're going to start like right at 9 a.m. on Monday. Um, the 30th. Yep. 30th, that's what I meant. And then we'll finish Friday evening, and people can depart either Friday evening if they want or Saturday morning. Um, we will have housing in a dormitory and food in a cafeteria that is you know, just like a five-minute walk away from the School of uh, Music, Theater, and Dance at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, the options for people to participate are either this in-person workshop, which will run those dates. Uh, people could also separately purchase our online introductory course which again will have FaceTime with the three of us as faculty um, and you'll be able to process the information you'll be able to have tutorials and you'll be able to have uh, either group or individual lessons for the online hybrid course as well and the website for the workshop the website for the workshop uh, the best way to get to it would just be to, to google embodied music lab i'll make sure com. i put the link in the show notes yeah embodied music lab.com it's one of the top menu items you could also just search acoustic vocal pedagogy workshop and that should come up as well and all the registration takes place uh through that website uh university of michigan michigan is going to be handling the the food and lodging the the dorm and cafeteria um so that'll be a separate registration process 
Okay, great, 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 great. And the early and bird runs out March 28th. March 28th, early bird yeah. pricings, which saves you how much? Uh, it's a little over $100. A little over $100. Yep. Definitely worth getting in on it now. Yeah. Yep. Also should mention that because this is a new site and we had to commit to so many dorm rooms, there is a, a limit to the in-person. Yes, yes. Yeah. So we're limited to 40 participants. Of course, we don't know how that's going to play, but the, but the, the limit is 40. So get your registration and take advantage of the early bird deadline and uh, get your registration done here this month um, if you can can and are able. Uh, that will be absolutely wonderful. Uh, a couple of parting thoughts here before we leave really quickly, Vocal Fam. First, I want to give a huge shout out to Liz, yes. who gave her master's lecture recital on Tuesday evening. And I don't think in the last decade I have had a student accomplish as many of the things as we set out to accomplish in lessons actually in the recital and i wanted to say it publicly it was very good thank you <laughs> um uh when she came in there like her mix was rough and it was <laughs> and it it is not anymore and and it was there were some absolutely sp spectacular moments of everything ranging from you know, Rogers and Hammerstein to um, Rockabilly to Adele, Adele yeah. to Beyonce to uh, Carpenters. Um, it was quite a wide array of, of, of repertoire, and I'm very proud of her. Uh, other thing, uh, listen, if, you, if, you're, if you're still on the bandwagon and paying attention, I will say this, and I'm saying it very cautiously because the last season, Picard season four is really good so far. <laughs> Dear Lord, can they stick the landing? Can they stick the landing? Because it's been really good through four episodes. Uh, I'm very nervous. Um, Sarah and I will definitely do a Mandalorian season three wrap yeah. up when it's done. Yeah. Um, that'll come later this season at some point. Um, but it's off to a okay start. It's a lot of exposition because we're telling a new story, so sure. it's very sure. expositional. Um, also, if Perna could put one more recommendation out there, do not watch White Lotus season two. It is awful. Um, right. Season one was phenomenal, and this season is just terrible. Anyway, I I, oh, anyway. <laughs> I I feel like I, I'm keeping up with with pop culture by rewatching Community from the beginning for the fifth time. Yeah. Well, I mean, the movie's coming out this summer. It's a good time to do it. Movie. Six seasons in a movie, but Sarah, this is our sixth season. How do you do show. a movie of a podcast? Oh, uh, there are ways. Mm. I feel like some of the episodes I'm on are almost as long as a movie. <laughs> oh, listen, if you put our length, I, I, I don't know, we will never be the most downloaded voice podcast on the internet ever. But if you put our minutes of content, I think we probably have more content than any voice podcast in existence. <laughs> That's what matters the most. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. They, say, they always say quantity over quality, famously. Well, we haven't put out much quality yet, so I don't... <laughs> That's why I'm saying. Okay, all Quantity. Right. Anyway, Quantity. all right. Friends, thank you for joining us. Yes. Um, we, always an honor to have you back on, and... Uh, just thank you so much and vocal fam go 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 acoustic vocal pedagogy workshop this summer in ann arbor it'll be a or join the online course options oh, there are options okay all right all right uh, sarah you. breakfast oh uh, it was a cheerio kind of day 
Yeah, I know. It's rough. We're still on Cheerios. Yep. It, yep. Anyway. Sometimes we're eight years old. It's okay. <laughs> Cheerios. Totally you know, you know like they're good. When's the last time you had a bowl of Cheerios? Like four days ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You understand then. I Sometimes eat what my children just... eat. That's 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 the definition of yeah. 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 definition All of right. parenthood. Yeah. All right, that's it for us, vocal fam. We're out. Peace. <laughs>